Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air, and uh, what do you know, today's the, uh, the last day of August, and um, you know here we are at the end of August, so we can say that we're out with the old and in with the new, knowing that uh, tomorrow marks the start of a new month, uh, being September, so uh, I, I, don't wa- I don't know where all this time has gone, but it sure has gone by quick, but... Uh, I do know that every time I'm on the air with you guys, um, the most important thing to do is to uh, not only uh, educate you all with what I have to share, but to make the most of the uh, time that we have, given that um, you get 60 minutes um, allotted to you per um, episode. So, you know, think of 60 minutes like in a uh, professional football game or a college football game, 60 minutes, that's, you know, equivalent to four 15-minute quarters, so... You do have to make the most of that 60-minute um, uh, time frame uh, that's uh, given to you. So um, what I do know is that where we uh, ended in the uh, previous uh, podcast uh, segment episode, that um, it seemed as though, you know, here for a good period of time, the British were really were in control of just about everything on uh, both sides, uh, from the Army and uh, Naval standpoint, only for... Um, Lieutenant Jesse um, Elliott Duncan to come up with a daring uh, maneuver, which he performed um, back on October 9th of 1812, being uh, the maneuver that he, uh, where he teamed up with uh, a Captain uh, Nathan Towson from the Army, and it was a joint Army and uh, Naval expedition with uh, sailors and 50 Army regulars that resulted in a surprise capture of two uh, British brigs being the HMS Caledonia and the Detroit. You know, two ships may not seem like, or I should say the capture of two ships may not seem like enough to uh, stem the uh, tide in terms of uh, changing momentum altogether, but it was enough to uh, shake some nerves in the uh, in the upper, um, higher level command chain of the uh, British Army, or end of the Navy, I should say. It was enough of a uh, wake-up call for them to start paying a little bit more attention to what's going on on the American side. You know, think about it. It's bad enough that one of the ships was captured, that Lieutenant uh, Jesse Duncan Elliott and uh, Captain Nathan Towson were successful in capturing one of the uh, British ships, but they also were able to go about burning uh, the other one simply because, um, you know, both sides were fighting over it to the point that... um, once the British, once the Americans secured it, they ultimately deemed that it was no longer um, salvageable. But uh, given that they knew that it was no longer salvageable, they were smart enough to burn it. So this way, the British technically were down two vessels. So, you know, desperate times do call for desperate measures. And, um, you know, this may not have been a slam dunk uh, victory overnight, but it was enough uh, to give it was. How do I say it? What uh, Lieutenant Elliot did was he gave us some hope. And I have a good feeling that whatever hope he had given us will help us going forward as 1813 evolves. Because um, 1813 um, is going to be one of those years on the waters where the, the, the American Navy, or the United States Navy, I should say, is going to uh, go to even bigger heights. 
Now, of course, USS Constitution, a.k.a. Old Ironsides, has uh, scored some impressive victories. As I mentioned from the previous podcast, I mean, her, uh, she has scored a handful of victories, to say the least, on the uh, open waters. Uh, the one that often comes to my mind is her uh, victory over uh, the British um, warship uh, HMS Gruyere. I'm not sure why that one usually comes to my mind, but uh, but whenever I've seen, um, what do you call it, uh, photos of old Ironsides, more often than not, they usually have her uh, de- depicted as being out on the water, rightfully so, and going uh, face-to-face with an, uh, with an enemy uh, ship, uh, most notably during the uh, War of 1812. And I bet most of you probably don't know this, but... Um, a fellow by the name of Paul Revere, whom was famous in leading that last-minute uh, ride, uh, warning the people of Lexington that the British were coming. Of course, Paul, that you know, don't always believe what the textbooks told you. I mean, it was just not some one-night thing where he went out and said, "Oh, the British were coming." Uh, Paul Revere had uh, developed a, a network rider system where uh, riders went from all different directions, warning. Um, the greater public of an imminent uh, presence of British soldiers making their way through, well, making through where they eventually did, being Lexington and Concord. But Paul Revere, in the post-American Revolutionary War era, was instrumental in helping uh, design the USS Constitution, uh, being her whole. So, you know, it's often easy to assume that um, someone like Paul Revere is only associated with the American Revolutionary Movement. He is uh, very useful even in the post-Revolutionary War uh, era, just like many of our other forefathers uh, who went on to do um, amazing things. And even though Paul Revere never held any, you know, office like President of the United States, The fact that he was able to contribute to some of America's first uh, warships, most notably USS Constitution, a.k.a. Old Ironsides, uh, that says a lot onto itself. So in this uh, podcast series, um, in this uh, podcast segment document, um, or episode, I should say, (laughs) get the right words out here. In this episode, we're going to learn about um, whom becomes uh, the new uh, naval commander uh, on the British side for uh, Lake Erie. And we're going to learn about um, the ups and downs. There may not be so much ups and downs in this episode. There could be some ups and downs that we will uh, talk about in the, the next time I'm on the air. But I do know that in this uh, particular episode, we will learn about ups and downs that uh, both sides uh, endure. So, I think it's time to say that we should get the show on the road and be prepared for our first uh, lead-off question. Uh, Following uh, their defeat at Fort George from late May 1813, would British forces soon endure another setback? You know, lately it seems like the British have been have been the ones on the run now. You know, yes, Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott launched that uh, surprise attack on the uh, Niagara River, resulting in the capture of those two uh, British vessels, being HMS Caledonia and HMS Detroit. But now we have to wonder, whatever momentum we had under uh, that surprise attack led by uh, Lieutenant Elliott, uh, where does this go 
into um, 1813. So uh, the question being the following, following uh, their defeat at Fort George from late May 1813, would British forces soon endure another setback? And the answer is yes. This next setback took place at the Battle of Sackett's Harbor. And Sackett's Harbor, uh, I do believe I told you all from the previous episode, that is located um, just, um, it's north of Syracuse, uh, but just west of Watertown in uh, Jeff in Jefferson County, uh, right on uh, Lake Ontario. But uh, Sackett's Harbor um, was the um, a vital, uh, Sackett's, the town of Sackett's Harbor, Sackett's Harbor served as a vital uh, naval hub uh, station on uh, Lake Ontario. And what we learned from the previous uh, episode was that it seemed like early on that at Sackett's Harbor, a lot more um, productivity um, took place versus what what was able to be accomplished early on from Lake Erie. And a lot of that was because we were still struggling to find the exact uh, spot along Lake Erie as to where the uh, shipbuilding would take place. So anyways, yes, yeah, Sackett's Harbor is on uh, Lake Ontario. And um, there was not just one battle, but there were uh, two battles at Sackett's Harbor. Now, a British force got ferried across Lake Ontario with the intent on capturing the town. Uh, to me, this is pretty bold. I mean, you know, it's one thing to defeat um, U.S. forces at Sackett's Harbor, but they want to take the whole town, and by taking the whole town you are pretty much um, removing uh, the entire uh, naval base operation at Sackett's Harbor. So if, if the British are successful enough in being able to take the town, then where else can we go on Lake Ontario to build um, not just ships, but to be able to have a... Um, to have an operations base where uh, ships can be um, built, they can come in and out of the harbor without um, any, uh, without having to be in fear of a surprise uh, enemy attack. So, the thought alone of the British uh, trying to um, capture the town would have um, uh, would have uh, military officials on the United States side very concerned. But luckily, uh, the Americans. Um, didn't back down. The Americans um, struck it very hard to the British. I mean, they they didn't just strike it hard to the British. They defeated them. So, so yes, uh, Sackett's Harbor being the chief uh, dockyard and base for the American naval fleet on Lake Ontario, the British mission, or objective, I should say, was driven back by U.S. regulars, militia, Marines, sailors, the whole nine yards, folks. It just wasn't one uh, military unit uh, doing it all. When you have, to me, this was a joint operation by both the Army and the Navy. Now, yes, the Marines, you know, in today's time, we have really there's five branches. You have the Army, uh, the Navy, the Marines, uh, the Air Force, and then you have... Um, the Coast Guard, and normally the Coast Guard comes under um, the Department of Defense during a time of war, but since 9-11, um, from what I've um, learned that Coast Guard, the Coast Guard usually now falls under the Department of Homeland Security, but 
obviously it's fair to say that uh, things were much uh, different uh, during uh, the War of 1812. There was no such thing as a Department of Defense. It was referred to as the Department of War. And it stayed that way up until the very... Um, it stayed that way, I want to say, up until the late 19th century and into um, the start of the 20th century. The British defeat at Sackett's Harbor led Commodore Sir James Lucas Yeo, spelled Y-E-O, and Lieutenant General Sir George Prevost to select, or I should say appoint, Lieutenant Robert Harriet Barclay as the new Lake Erie commander. What I found interesting about Robert Barclay, folks, was that he was only 27 years old when he became the um, chief uh, commander of Lake Erie. But then again, Oliver Perry, folks, wasn't even 30 years old when he became master commandant of Lake Erie. So Oliver Perry and Robert Barclay both have something in common in that they are both not only in their late 20s, but they are both given head commanding uh, posts of Lake Erie. And they're not even 30 years old. Robert Harriet Barclay had experience as a Royal Naval officer. And get this, folks, he was born in 1786. So he would have been born uh, three years after the uh, Treaty of Paris was signed in 1783, ending the American Revolutionary War. He was born one year before the United States um, altered its um, existing government, uh, being that of the Articles of Confederation, and replaced it with what we know stands today after 235 years being the United States Constitution. So Robert Harriet Barclay, yes, was born in 1786. And believe it or not, folks, when he was 11 years old, come 1798, he um, began serving in the Royal Navy. So can you imagine being 11 years old and you are embarking on your career? Remember, folks, life expectancy is not high. And as I've said before, and I'll say it again, when you reach the age of 10, you are considered an adult. You have to get on with your life. And, you know, you don't have five and seven years to decide what it is you want to do. You know, this is a time where you have not, not only have you grown up by the time you're 10 years old, but you have to take um, your life to a new um to a new stage, a new course, and that's what he is doing. So, yes, believe it or not, at age 11 is when he begins serving in the Royal Navy. 1798, um, the year, uh, one year after George Washington's presidency ended and one year before George Washington himself dies, in 1798, uh, Robert Barclay became a lieutenant and in 1805, he participated at the Battle of Trafalgar, or Trafalgar. Uh, Barclay brought previous uh, combat experience with him to the Great Lakes waters. So this fellow is no stranger to uh, combat on the seas. Even though he may not be a stranger to combat on the seas, I still have to wonder, is he going to, is, number one, is he truly the right fit? Yes, you have you have experience on the on the uh, high waters in a time of war, and that's great. But is he going to be the um, the most effective leader? 
I don't know why I say that, but I do. Uh, sometimes you just have to wonder, okay, you know, uh, an officer can have all the experience um, there is to his advantage, but when it comes to a different setting, will will the advantages that he attained previously, will they uh, carry over into the new setting? It's all 50-50 hindsight. Now, given the United States Navy's dominance on Lake Ontario, Lieutenant Barclay is now forced to set up his command base at Amherstburg, Ontario. So instead of setting up a command base in the United States, he's having to do so in Amherstburg, Ontario, which is pretty much stationed along the Detroit River. Early June 1813, um, there were no U.S. vessels, or I should say armed uh, vessels, on Lake Ontario. And as for uh, Lieutenant Barclay, he arrived to Amherstburg, Ontario, um, around uh, June, early June. I think they said that he came around June 5th. But early June of 1813, there were no U.S. vessels, or I should say armed vessels, on Lake Ontario. However, American forces are not sitting back. They are busy at work constructing two large brig vessels at Presque Isle, as well as transferring multiple vessels from Black Rock on the Niagara River. The British loss of Fort George to the evacuation of Fort Erie had resulted in great disruption behind the overflow of British provisions coming from Niagara region into the Detroit River. Yes, any time um, you lose um, not just a fort, but on top of having to evacuate another one, it's bad enough that you lose the fort. But how about the means to uh, not be able to uh, transport uh, essential provisions from one um, from one part of um, from one body of water to another? You know, now you have to think to yourself, okay, if we aren't able to um, adequately send provisions um, along the Niagara River into the uh, Detroit River, where are we going to go next? So, you have, and of course, you have to remember there's no such things as um, helicopters or uh, airplanes. You know, so our um, options maybe at the moment are just simply limited. And, of course, there is no canal system yet. In other words, we don't have an Erie Canal system just yet. So one can only imagine, had the Erie Canal been built already in, already in operation, I can't imagine how much of a... Um, I can't imagine how much... Um, I don't know if I'd say tension is the right word, but I can only imagine how much... Um, conflict or how much of a uh, fight there would have been. I think fight's a better word to say. I can't imagine how much of a fight there would have been between both sides as to whom um, had sole control of the Erie Canal. Now, uh, prior to Robert Barclay's arrival at Amherstburg in early June 1813, uh, what was beginning to take shape on Lake Erie? So what, what do you all think may have been um, taking shape on Lake Erie prior to uh, Robert Barclay's arrival in Amherstburg? 
How about construction of a new uh, British vessel uh, led by um, a skilled shipbuilder in the name of uh, William Bell? From 1799 to 1813, William Bell had built multiple vessels at Amherstburg from uh, the brig General Hunter, the ship Queen Charlotte, to schooner Lady Prevost. The new vessel overseen by uh, shipbuilder uh, William Bell would be named HMS Detroit. Well, hold on, uh, hold on here for a second. I thought the HMS Detroit was um, burned uh, by the U.S. Uh, naval uh, forces per that joint operation led by um, Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott and uh, Captain Nathan Towson. It was, but the British have decided that, you know, we want to build another ship, and rightfully so, but we're, gonna, um, but we're not going to let the HMS Detroit um, die in vain. In other words, yes, she may have been captured, the first go-around, but we want to build a, a bigger and better um, HMS Detroit, and hopefully the Americans won't do the same thing that they had done previously. So the, this new HMS Detroit will, is going to be built in honor of General Isaac Brock, not just so much in general of Isaac, in, in honor of General Isaac Brock, but more so for his victory over U.S. Brigadier General William Hull at Fort Detroit from August of 1812. Uh, for those of you who were with me from the previous podcast series about uh, Fort Meg's Men of Patriotism and Courage, and I know we had talked about this earlier from a previous uh, podcast episode to the uh, series that we're doing now, uh, Brig- U.S. Brigadier General William Hull, he didn't uh, bother to put up a fight against uh, General Isaac Brock and his and the and the forces under him, including the Indian allies. The uh, Indian allies and the British uh, in, engaged in numerous uh, trickery tactics where they would come near the fort and then fall back, only to do the same thing again over and over multiple times to where it just confused General Hull. And what does General Hull do? He pulls out the uh, white flag, the truce flag, surrender, and, of course, he was charged with cowardice, treason, only, to, though, to be spared by President James Madison because of his uh, past service, um, honorable service from the Revolutionary War. So not only is HMS Detroit being named in honor of uh, the victory that General Isaac Brock um, prevailed at, at uh, Fort Detroit, but also for his victory at the River Raisin, which was then known as uh, Frenchtown, a.k.a. present-day Monroe, Michigan, in January of 1813. So, you know, it's one thing to um, give a ship a title, but more often than not, there has to be a reason why you are giving the ship a title. You just don't name it something because you feel like it. Um, General Isaac Brock has a lot of connections with Detroit, I mean, in the fact that he has not only not only did he prevail at Fort Detroit, but he also uh, took over the city of Detroit and Brock's forces, along with Indian allies, but most notably Brock's forces, basically um, required that everyone in Detroit take up uh, their allegiance to the crown against their own will. Those whom did not want to be a part of um, of uh, British loyalty. 
HMS Detroit, though, by the time that um, Lieutenant um, Barclay arrived into Amherstburg in June of 1813, HMS Detroit is nowhere near uh, complete status. So if it's not anywhere near complete status, one has to wonder how long, how much longer is it going to take. So for Lieutenant Barclay, he knew that the American naval forces were already ahead of the game with new shipbuilding uh, vessel projects on Lake Erie. And I want to say it, that um, probably at least six um, new uh, ships had been built between April and uh, June of 1813 for the... Uh, American uh, naval force um, side so that tells you right there the progress that's already being done matter of fact I can um, go back to my book here and matter of fact I've got it right here folks I can tell you this for the Americans that um, three um, schooners were um, launched in April of 1813 you had the uh, porcupine the tigress and the scorpion and they all had one long uh, 32-pounders, whereas, but on the other hand, the Scorpion, besides one long 32-pounder, she had a, one short 32-pounder. On June 9th of 1813, the United States Navy at um, Lake Erie launched a schooner, another schooner, being that of the Ariel, which um, had four long 12-pounders. And on June 25th, um, the U.S. Navy launched the Lawrence with two long 12-pounders and 18 32-pounder carronades. And then on July 4th, the 37th uh, birthday of the United States, the, the Navy launches the Niagara, which has two, it pretty much is identical to uh, the Lawrence. Two long 12-pounders, 18 32-pounder carronades. Well, I will tell you this much. The British have less than six ships being built between that time. And, of course, before this uh, podcast segment episodes end, this podcast segment episode ends, I will make sure to tell you just, in fact, how many vessels the British actually constructed between April and June might be surprised to know what that number is. So anyways, yes, uh, a lot of uh, work is going on on the American side with um, ships, to say the least. Now, as for um, Lieutenant Barclay, you know, Lieutenant Barclay, he's in a tough situation here. You know, yes, you know, the British might have the best Navy in the world, but just because they have the best Navy in the world, it doesn't mean that they can endure setbacks against a lesser foe, and the lesser foe being, in this case, the United States. So what does uh, Lieutenant Bar Robert Barclay go about um, proceeding with in terms of a modified plan? Well, Lieutenant Barclay proposed a joint Army-Navy strike on Presque Isle Bay. And this um, joint Army-Navy strike that Lieutenant Barclay wanted, his intention with this would have uh, seen to it that all American vessels would have been destroyed, as well as those under construction 
including the entire naval shipyard at Presque Isle. To me, that would be a slam dunk. To me, that would almost indicate that, hey, if the British could pull this thing off, that maybe this war itself would be completely over. Well, Lieutenant Barclay pressed left and right. He went as far as trying to persuade Colonel Henry Proctor, who's over in Ohio, um, leading um, a um, an ex- not just an expansion, but leading a fight against uh, General William Henry Harrison at Fort Meigs, uh, located in uh, present-day Perrysburg, Ohio, uh, just outside of Toledo. He's hoping that uh, by defeating Harrison's uh, forces at, per- at uh, Fort Meigs, that um, not only will it result in a defeat of the Americans at Fort Meigs, but it will result in the British uh, retaking um, land that had been stolen by uh, the Indians or that had been taken from the Indians under the uh, 1795 Treaty of Greenville, which forced uh, Indian nations north of the Ohio River to uh, forego uh, land in the southern and eastern part of the state, but yet retain their uh, lands uh, north of the Ohio River. Well, you know, Lieutenant um, Robert um, Harriet Barclay has um, tried to persuade Colonel Proctor left and right to change his mind. But Colonel Proctor is not budging, folks, and this is a bad um, mistake on the part of Colonel Proctor. Colonel Proctor is just flat out fixed on um, on taking Fort Meigs along the Maumee River. He'd rather do this instead of attacking Perry's fleet. Now, uh, how concerned were U.S. naval commanders about Lake Erie's lower shores? And I'm sure some of you are thinking now, you know, yes, Lake Erie may be... Um, might be the shallowest of the Great Lakes, and Lake Erie may not be like the size of Huron or Superior or Michigan. So why should U.S. naval commanders be concerned about the lower shores? Well, I can tell you this much, folks. The U.S. naval commanders are all very concerned. But they are most notably concerned about a um, place west of Erie, Pennsylvania, being that of Cleveland, Ohio. And Cleveland, Ohio, folks, being in northeast Ohio, um, maybe about an hour, an hour or two west of Erie. Uh, Cleveland isn't far from Pittsburgh either, too, folks. Maybe about two, two and a half hours, maybe three at tops, depending on the direction you go. Um, so Cleveland, folks, you know, it borders the Ohio-Pennsylvania uh, line. So. You know, yes, it's one thing to be concerned about everything that's going on right in the heart of Erie, Pennsylvania, or let alone Buffalo, New York, given that uh, Black Rock is is right in the vicinity and uh, supplies were coming from uh, Black Rock to Erie. But we've got to think about uh, Cleveland. So who's going to take a stand on the American side regarding the uh, concerns about Cleveland? His name is Major Thomas S. Jessup. And I want to say that there is a town in Maryland called Jessup, Maryland, and it might be named after this fellow. I, I probably need to look that up, and, and if I find that it is true, I will let you all know. So Major Thomas S. Jessup, who was an officer in the 19th U.S. Infantry, he feared that a British attack was strong on Lake Erie's lower shores, 
to where he um, took matters into his own hands by gathering all the bateau boats by loading, or I should say filling them with rocks, only to sink them in the Cuyahoga River where the enemy couldn't detect them. So think about it, folks. If you're that worried and you don't have a lot of time on your side, what would be the best thing to do? You know, we don't have such things as garages, folks. We don't, we don't have uh, sto- many storage units. So <laughs> we've got to be creative in desperate times. So acquire all the rocks there are. And these bateau boats don't weigh a lot, folks. They're uh, small boats. They, um, they are boats that, are, um, that you would find more so on rivers or, or including in the lakes. But they don't weigh a whole lot. So the more, um, and I think it's fair to say that um, Jessup would have uh, taken the bateau boats closer to the shore where they would have been able to have stayed intact and stacked them with rocks all around. And this way, British forces never would have known what was um, around them. So yes, he did this and it prevailed. And he prevailed. Uh, June 14th, 1813, British forces were spotted near the Cuyahoga River or around its entry point only to be halted by a thunderstorm. Therefore, folks, Cleveland was spared from further threats. You know, Mother Nature can do some pretty amazing things even in a time of war. I have to wonder here, had Mother Nature not intervened, the British would have come through. And who's to say that they probably would have... uh, Who's not to say that they couldn't have prevailed? Who's not to say that they could have unearthed or uncovered some um, bateaus that were um, hiding in disguise under rocks? You, You just never know. So thank goodness Mother Nature played to our advantage and thwarted the British from from coming in um, further inland into the waters. Uh, Come spring of 1813, what had the American high-level chain of command uh, implemented for the Lake Erie campaign? How about a system or a strategical game plan involving both Army and Navy assets? The objective for the Navy was to attain dominance, or I should say authority, on the lake which would enable transporting General William Henry Harrison's troops by water or via water by boats to where an eventual attack at Fort Malden on Canadian soil could play out, thus resulting in victory where Detroit would get um, secured back into American, or I should say U.S. forces possession. Remember, folks, the British still are in control of Detroit. Uh, Harrison wanted to invade Canada in January of 1813, but the debacle at the River Raisin changed all of that to where um, to where those plans just could not go forward. And it's probably best at that time, as unfortunate as it was that the debacle happened, and about 100 American troops were massacred, um, whom did not go as prisoners, but they stayed behind to uh, recover from their wounds. They were only massac- They got massacred by um, the Wyandotte Indian Nation. They uh, were brutally murdered in their sleep. They were brutally murdered uh, while um, while <laughs> while awakening from their rest. And the rally cry became the following: "Remember the River Raisin." So, and that rally cry was used at uh, Fort Meigs. So, 
I'm beginning to wonder that, okay, by, with this uh, joint operation, that if somehow Perry were to prevail at Lake Erie via water, then um, the chances of a victory in Canada are going to be much smoother, or not just smoother, but very strong to where there would be an easy um, journey by water into uh, Canada where um, Harrison's troops can assemble and be able to strike to strike a blow at um, at the British in um, Amherstburg on Canadian soil. Uh, General Harrison did not want to be fully dependent, though, upon um, a naval victory in order to achieve his objectives. He wanted naval forces stationed near Lake Erie's western end versus versus doing so in Cleveland. Why did why do you think General uh, William Henry Harrison? Um, saw it this way. Well, Cleveland being in northeastern Ohio, and not that there's anything wrong with Cleveland being in northeastern Ohio, but given the circumstances that were going on at the time, General Harrison saw uh, Cleveland as more vulnerable to an enemy attack. With the Navy being at Lake Erie's western end, if they were stationed on Lake Erie's western end, the Navy this would have allowed um, Harrison's backup plan, being that of a land assault from Fort Meigs to Detroit, um, to um, not only just take place, but the event. But how I say it, the the plan itself, this option would have um, would have given Harrison um, a better means to achieve his objective if the uh, first option did not go through. In other words, you know, what the government kind of wants here now is that they want they want to see naval dominance be achieved, but for Harrison, and he's smart, there does need to be a backup plan in place. Okay, what if we don't achieve everything that we have uh, laid out on paper to achieve via water in terms of... Um, going up against uh, Lieutenant Barclay's uh, forces. It's just good to have a backup plan uh, because you can't put all your eggs in one basket. I mean, we can say that even with um, everyday, um, day-to-day uh, life uh, decisions. Uh, what dilemmas did the British Navy face come spring of 1813 along Lakes Ontario and Erie? They faced multiple ones. Uh, if Lake Ontario fell to the United States, then guess what would happen? All British trading post centers to the north and the west would get cut off from their primary supply lines. But if Lake Ontario stayed in British hands, only for Lake Erie to fall into the U.S., into the hands of the United States, then uh, Britain still had the means of transporting provisions to the upper lakes, being that of Huron and Erie, via river system in Upper Canada, including, say, Michigan and uh, Superior. So this is a, um, it's a double-edged sword here. Either way, I mean, if the British are going to lose um, one of the lakes, I mean, they don't want to lose Ontario, but if they did lose Ontario, then as long as they can keep um, Lake Erie in their possession, they still have a means of getting the uh, most essential of uh, provisions to their final destination, if it means going um, via the uh, river system in Upper Canada, and that would be through the uh, St. Lawrence uh, River.
The British loss of Lake Erie, however, meant that everything north and west would get totally severed, cut off. British success going forward would have to center upon all things logistics. And what I mean by logistics here, folks, is how about the means to equip, arm, man, to sustaining a relative combat force. So it's one thing to uh, plan where you want to strike an attack. It's one thing to plan where you might have your base. But you've got to find the means to be able to equip, that is to provide, um, to provide essentials, uh, shelter, uh, food, uh, ad adequate rations, uh, not just for uh, one day, but for, for weeks on end. You know, you need to make sure that you have enough rations to feed your army for maybe, say, three months minimum, but six months, um, six months, um, six months at best. And you got to make sure that those rations are intended to feed uh, the intended or the desired number of uh, men um, in the uh in the unit. How about arming? Uh, you know, you got to make sure that each man has um, not only a rifle or a musket, but that he has an adequate supply of, um, that he has a cartridge box that contains um, uh, powder that he would need to use to um, be prepared for, um, for uh, all the necessary steps that go with uh, reloading his uh, rifle or musket. And then, yes, so basically it's not just one thing. Logistics are multiple things. You know, we have to think to ourselves, okay, well, what if plan A doesn't work? Do we have plan B to fall back onto? And how effective will plan B be compared to what plan A would have offered? You know, yes, believe it or not, folks, you know, yes, we have to be uh, reminded constantly that even in the start of the 19th century, it's a given that the that Britain has the world's largest army and navy. But I am going to admit that uh, British forces did lack both soldiers and sailors for what lied ahead on Lake Erie. You would think that here, here we have the mightiest army in the world, and yet they are going to be facing uh, challenges. Uh, when did the British... Under the leadership of master shipbuilder William Bell first go about laying down um, the beginning um, work stages on HMS Detroit. Uh, that would take place in January 1813. The design or layout of HMS Detroit was to be similar to that of Queen Charlotte. Um, she was to be a, a sloop of war. A sloop of war, folks, is a warship that has a single gun deck that can hold up to 18 guns. A sloop of war is also what we call a full-rigged ship, a vessel equipped with three or more square-rigged masts placed in three segments, lower, top, and top gallant. Uh, the Detroit, or I should say HMS Detroit's keel depth regarding her draft was doable on Lake Erie's waters but not so uh, to the north, being Lake Huron. Her backbone, a.k.a. keel, simply wasn't strong enough for working in the opposite direction to which the wind itself was blowing. So in other words, um, HMS Detroit's keel was going against the wind, not to the, sh not to the ship's favor. 
Early 1813 saw uh, William Bell construct two small-sized gunboats that went south into Ohio for the siege at Fort Meigs. Well, why didn't he think of uh, sending these two small-sized gunboats to Lake Erie for the eventual um, naval combat that will take place um, in the latter part of 1813? Well, it turns out that these uh, two small-sized gunboats that William Bell constructed they were too small for naval combat on Lake Erie. Well, we have to be reminded, folks, that not all ships, no matter how big or sometimes no matter how small they are, not, not every ship is necessarily equipped for um, naval uh, combat. Now, did uh, William Bell have other skilled people in the form of shipbuilders assisting him with building HMS Detroit? Uh, it turns out, folks, that there were very, very few or hardly any shipbuilders as skilled as he was in building a ship as premier as HMS Detroit. He did receive help, or I should say manpower, from those men hailing out of Quebec. But I have to uh, report to you all this. Unfortunately, uh, the majority of the workers whom aided in the construction of HMS Detroit were unqualified to being unskilled, which simply impacted, or I should say had a profound impact on William Bell's timeline for getting all necessary work on HMS Detroit completed. So yes, it's, you know, it's one thing to have um, laborers or just you know, extra help or I should say extra hired help to come and assist with getting uh, the necessary job done. But if these people don't have any um, true experience in um, building a ship, then I don't mean it the wrong way, but you really are up a creek. I shouldn't be uh, judging those who don't have experience, but we also have to think about time here too. This isn't some, you know, joyride project that we can just take our sweet time on in completing. For William Bell, he's got a deadline. And it's not just a deadline to build this ship, but it but in a few short months a battle is going to take place on Lake Erie and and he needs to have this ship ready to go. It's not just one ship, folks. I mean, he's there there will be other ships in the British um fleet, but not all ships are of the same size. Uh, some ships stand out from the others. Uh, the uh, sloop of war ships are really the granddaddy of of all ships of war during this time. These are the big these are the big guys. These are the big boys. I mean, these are the guys. These are the ships that have um, a single gun deck. Yeah, that holds up to eighteen guns. I mean, the these guys, these uh, ships can probably I don't know what the uh, the overall crew is, but I can tell you that it's more than 25 people, to say the least. So, yes, um, you know, William Bell is in a, uh, he's stuck between a rock and a hard place, to say the least. So, not only is he dealing with unqualified, including unskilled um, workers, but he, has, he is also encountering uh, supply shortages, most notably iron. And iron is something that's, um, that is found, um, you can find it pretty um, um, heavily in England. 
And during the um, beginning years of the 19th century and going forward, iron was uh, plentiful in England, which meant that iron ships, more iron ships can be built in England, not only on a large scale size in terms of large ships, but by having an iron ship, that also means there's more room for cargo. Unfortunately, at this time, iron is not abundant in Canada. It probably won't become abundant in Canada until maybe the start of the 1840s and the 1850s when um, immigrants from Europe uh, settle in uh, Great Lakes communities along the upper peninsula of Michigan, not only on, on the American side, but on the Canadian side, where they start mining for um, natural resources like iron, ore, and if you go into Minnesota, northern Minnesota, there's the um, Iron Ore Range, which is uh, home to towns like uh, Evelith or Evelith and uh, Hibbing, which aren't too far from uh, Duluth. So, okay, iron is not abundant in Canada at this time. Now, what I found interesting is that there are sleighs that um, William Bell is able to use for transporting uh, such things as provisions, ammunition to clothing, which is doable from uh, Fort Erie. However, at Amherstburg, it's not doable for such heavier equipment as uh, bolts, hinges, cleats. And in the winter of 1813, um, an English or a British vessel known as the Salina, she was caught in a bad ice storm on uh, Lake Erie's waters on the Canadian side, but the weather got so bad, uh, to I should say, where the winds picked up so bad to where the ice broke. And believe it or not, folks, when it, if the conditions are right in wintertime, uh, the winds can break ice apart. And, and so the, the Salina, she uh, got caught up in this ice storm to where she steered towards uh, Lake Erie's um, American, American side. And she ultimately became a, a prize for the United States Navy. And it, not just the ship itself being a prize, but what was in the uh, ship. How about iron, copper, caulking? So who has access to iron now? Who has more access to iron and who doesn't? Well, the side that has more access to iron is the United States. The side that doesn't have access now, or is really out of it, is uh, the British. Uh, besides construction problems, what else contributed to further complications regarding HMS Detroit? How about a labor dispute? Issues with supplies not being sent to Amherstburg already in play, but a shortage of money existed for those laboring on the ship. The laborers, folks, go about launching a strike. It happened. To me, this is breaking news, but of course it's not it's not there for the rest of the world to know about, but I can't imagine being in William Bell's shoes and thinking to himself, how am I ever going to get this done? What have I gotten myself into? Did I ever anticipate in all the years of being a master shipbuilder, even in a time of war, that I would have a situation on my uh, shoulders such as this? Well, there is some good news to report, though. A series of talks did go forward, resulting in all further money that pertained to uh, laborers' wages would go directly to the workers' families in Quebec. So it appears as though that the strike that did happen was a short-term strike, thank goodness.
Thank heavens that nobody was killed, because sometimes labor unrest, not to be mean or not to get political, but history has shown that labor strikes and protests have uh, turned deadly to where people's lives have been lost, all in the name of, um, of uh, adequate uh, treatment, um, better pay, better wages, and better uh, working conditions. Uh, what kind of deck did a seagoing warship have below the waterline? I don't expect many of you all to know this, but I'll tell it to you. It's an Orlop deck. Orlop spelled O-R-L-O-P. An Orlop desk, or not desk, an Orlop deck was comprised of uh, storage rooms for surgeons, carpenters, and gunners. The uh, surgeons performed their work on an Orlop deck as it was free from enemy fire, but this wasn't the case for lake vessels. It turns out that for both uh, Lieutenant uh, Robert Barclay and uh, Commodore Oliver Perry, or I should say Master Commandant Oliver Perry, their largest ships only had what were called berth decks below, which meant that the operating rooms got located above the waterline and were subject to hostile enemy fire. So can you imagine, folks, um, being, um, it's one thing to be attacked by the enemy with uh, cannonballs firing, but can you imagine if the cannonball not only um, penetrates a mast or it penetrates a section of the ship, but only for that cannonball to uh, explode and um, and cause you to lose um, and cause you to endure some massive uh, bleeding or a massive uh, or a massive injury to the point where it's a matter of life and death. You can't be taken downstairs. Uh, you are actually going to have to be operated on in f while actual combat is going on in front of you. I, I just can't imagine that. But what I do know. I don't want to give it away. I don't think it's anything that much of a surprise. But what I can tell you is that um, that at the Battle of uh, Lake Erie, that um, that not only was there intense firing on both sides, but it is fair to say that both sides saw had um, had casualties, and they had many men wounded where they had to be operated on right in the middle of all the. Um, tense combat taking place so we do need to be reminded that just because we get wounded it doesn't automatically mean that we have access to a uh, private room facility where we are free from all of the uh, chaos surrounding us although HMS Detroit was officially launched come uh, mid-July 1813 she didn't get commissioned or I should say put into service until around August 17th but yet faced immense other problems from caulking, that is, hammering untwisted rope into seams of planks, to rigging, installing lines, blocks, sheets. Given the ship itself was three-masted and required more steps. Lieutenant uh, Barclay's big concern for HMS Detroit centered upon gathering military supplies to uh, ammunition. In August of 1813, Commodore, or I should say Master Commandant, Oliver Hazard Perry's fleet now had, the upper, now had upper control of Lake Erie. Barclay now had to assemble a ship, 
comprised of multiple calibers. Eight nine-pounders, six 12-pounders, two 18-pounders, three 24-pounders. And remember, and get this, folks, the British only constructed one ship, whereas the United States had constructed six ships from April to uh, June. The British had only done one, and that was HMS Detroit from uh, July to August of 1813. So the British are a bit behind. I don't know how behind, but to me they are somewhat behind. But worst of all, lied for uh, Lieutenant uh, Robert Barclay lied a large deficiency in overall experienced sailors. So here I was led to believe all this time while reading this book that, you know, yes, the British may have the best navy in the world, but yet in a time of war, their overall um, level of experienced sailors hasn't always been consistent like what we've been led to believe. So there again, we are confronted with a double-edged sword. Just because you um, serve in the British military, it doesn't mean that maybe... It doesn't mean that you enjoy serving in the military, as we've learned that many British um, soldiers deserted and often paid a price for deserting. For uh, Lieutenant Robert Harriet Barclay, he's having to ask himself, are these the men that I have been uh, spared with to fight an upcoming battle that uh, will make or break our means of controlling Lake Erie for the rest of this war. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast uh, segment episode, and uh, when I'm back on the air again next, we're going to learn more about uh, Oliver Hazard Perry's, um, or I should say the American side, and their means of manning uh, their fleet, and how they go about um, constructing their fleet, um, how uh, leadership goes about... um, breaking down tasks so that um, the burden isn't placed on just one person alone. So um, we have a lot of ground to cover, as always, but every time I'm on the air, it's well worth the while in covering. Well, thank you for your time, as always. I look forward to being back on the air, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe. Take care for now.